This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Hello, everybody. Hello, can you hear us? Does everyone hear us all right? We're going to get started as people are still coming in. We have a limited amount of time. Um, I am Clive Coutet. This is my wife, Charlene Coutet. Hi. Um, and our seminar title is called Stop Playing Games. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity for us to be able to come together and um, speak and converse. I pray, Lord, you give us wisdom, help us to get through all the content, um, and that people may be impacted and blessed. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So before we start, can everyone take their phones out? And I want everyone to either download an app called Slido or go to slido.com. Has anyone heard of this before? No. Okay. Let me know when you're on that site or if you have the app. For now, just go to the website, slido.com. When you get there, put in this code, 4176. It's how you guys are going to be asking us questions. How it works is someone may ask a question and they'll type it in this, this app here and we'll be able to see it on our phones. And if someone else agrees with that question, they can like it. And the questions with the most amount of likes get answered first. And we'll be doing that in our fourth session. We're going to have a, a, a Q&A panel with some experienced married couples. And um, this will be the best way for us to be able to do the Q&A session. So um, get on the app, download the app, or go to the website. How many of you are on that already? Can you see it? Can you see I put a question in there already? OK, so that was just a dummy question. But if you like the question, like it, and it'll stay at the top. If you have other questions, keep putting them in. And as people go on, um, they'll be able to, we'll be able to answer those questions. Okay. I'll leave that up for a bit. OK, so we are Clive and Charlene, like I mentioned. We live at Weimar in California, but we're originally from England. We have spent the last seven years married, not necessarily happily married, um, but we've been married. Um, and we're still here, praise the Lord. Um, and now happily married. And now happily married. <laughs> praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> um, and um, we kind of want to share our journey with you. We've both been through our own challenges. I both ex have had our own experiences prior to getting married. I have the privilege of having four older sisters and no brothers. So being in that environment, I was constantly surrounded by women, a home full of women. And as I kind of got older, I naturally, if you're surrounded by women your whole life, I naturally crave women attention. You know? So I went on a journey. My wife went on her own journey. And she's going to share a little bit about that shortly. Um, but my initial um, idea of marriage, uh, or relationship, sorry, was not necessarily the most Christian way, because I wasn't really raised that way. So my ideas were almost the same experience as Charlene had, but just without me being there. Does that make sense? So um, we're going to be sharing a little bit about that. We're going to be sharing about how we can heal from some of these past mistakes. Um, that's really going to be in session two and three, um, using a sanctuary. We're going to be talking about um, 
some of the struggles that we went through, some of the trials. Um, yeah, and just the approach to marriage. I had a really good idea of what I thought marriage was going to be like, what my marriage was going to be like, what wife I was going to be, what mother I was going to be. The whole nine yards, I had it planned out. And, um, well, life happened, and it wasn't my tick list. I'm a very um, process-based person, and my formula to relationship success wasn't very... It, it, it was not very good. I thought it was flawless. Um, and God had to take us both on a journey, a separate journey um, of rediscovery, of realizing that life isn't a formula. I'm sure you guys are figuring that out, but we, we naturally gravitate to formulas because we want to find success. We want to find that person. We want to be happy. We want to be in community. Um, but how do we get from those desires and cravings and making better decisions to be able to get the outcome that we truly want? Not the outcome that I found I always started to get, which wasn't what I wanted. So I, I initially grew up in church. Um, but many of you may have had this similar experience, but church can sometimes just feel like a building. It doesn't feel like there's relationship there with other people, um, with God. It was just four walls, just like this room. That's what it felt like to me. So mentally, I left church, and I went to crave other things in the world. And um, it was only really um, when I came back into the church that I started to really realize how things should be done. And that kind of started when um, I met Charlene, and we began talking. I met Charlene about the same time as I came back into church and recommitted to give my life to God. And all I wanted to do was serve God. And um, we started talking, we started chatting, and um, maybe you can tell the rest. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I got to the point in my life where I was done with guys. I was like, you're all waste men, like, sorry. Um, but it was really frustrating for me because I'd always grown up with this desire to be a mum. And if you backtrack, it's like, well, before I become a mom, then I should probably become a wife. And then before you become a wife, you have to find the guy. And um, I remember coming to a GYC, actually. It was in 2000, and I think it was the one that was called No Turning Back. And the opening address floored me. Because you think you're going to come to GYC, there's like, what, three to 5,000 young people on fire for Christ. I'm going to find my husband. He is going to be here. Um, and the opening address was no turning back. And it was like, is there anything that is holding you back from being completely sold out <coughs> to Christ and Christ alone? And God literally just impressed upon my heart so heavily that your desire to be with somebody, to find your spouse, is overriding every other thought process that you have. It is blinding you. And God was like, give it, give it up. And so when the guy made the appeal, I can't remember who was preaching, I was like, what am I committing to? What am I going up for the appeal? Am I committing to a life of celibacy? Like, what is this? And if anybody saw my face, they would have thought I was crazy because I was like, I'm really expressive with my face. It just screwed up and looked a whole mess. And I was just crying my eyes out. Like, am I giving up this desire to be with somebody? Will I be alone? And is that going to be OK? And I just found my feet, went in the aisle, and I was walking up, and I did not even know what I was giving up. I, and, and I couldn't even say, OK, God, let's do this. I was just like, OK. It was the quietest whisper. And God gave me this opportunity throughout that conference to almost have these divine blinkers. I didn't actually see people. Obviously, I see people. I didn't bump into anybody. But that 
desire to look and see if that person that I'm waiting for is there went. And it was only when I got home after the conference and almost like, like saw when the, the blinkers came off my eyes did I realize how much of my mental time and strength was given to this passionate desire just to find my husband. And I think that it led me to really re-evaluate re my life. And I looked back at my previous relationships and I realized that I had a really big problem. The problem was is that I thought that I had a formula to success for relationships. I made sure that I looked right when I went out. I made sure my clothes looked just right. My hair was done just right. I made sure that I spoke in a way that showed that you know, I was intelligent. I, was, I, I could cook, I could clean, I could wash, iron, so I was the perfect wife. On paper, flawless. But my heart wasn't in the right place. My heart was seeking after the pieces, but not the relationship. I wanted a relationship with a guy without understanding that I, I had no idea of what love was in Christ. I had a list, I remember writing in the back of one of my diaries, I kept a very sporadic diary, and I had this idea of the attributes that I thought were admirable, and they were all really good. Things that my husband actually does have, praise the Lord. But I put them in an order of, that, of the things that I thought were, were necessary um, to life, and I went after them in a very, um, what's the word? formulaic way, it was without Christ. And I ran into a problem. Um, because growing up in church, I struggled to see examples <coughs> of really good Christian marriages. Does anybody else find that that's a struggle? I'm from a broken home. My parents divorced when I was maybe 11, 12, somewhere around there. It wasn't, it wasn't nice, it was a bit messy. Um, everything's much better now, praise God. But at the time, it was really hard, and I became super disillusioned with this idea of love. I stopped being able to say I love you to anybody or anything. Those three dirty words, I couldn't even say it. So the people that I used to like, or the people I used to want to say I love you to, like my sister or my brother or my mum, I would just wink at them. But I couldn't say those three dirty words because I heard I love you said by so many people that I just saw were hurting each other. And I was like, I don't, I don't really want this idea of love anymore. So when I approached dating and marriage, I just had this formula of do not be like your parents. Don't end up like that. But I didn't know how to go about finding true and lasting love. And so I find myself um, ending up with guys that um, were a waste of time, essentially. I wanted a godly union. I wanted a spiritual home. I wanted a priest who would lead me and my family and our future children in worship. I wanted to feel secure. I didn't want to grow up and live through the insecurities that I saw my home uh, was and which ended up falling apart. I couldn't go through the pain that I saw my mother go through. I didn't want to make myself vulnerable to that kind of situation. So I was like, no matter what, in my whole dating situation, I'm going to make sure that I have all the pieces to find the right person. But the reality was that I didn't understand that this quest for finding the right person is a battle for your mind. I thought it was just super hard to find somebody. Where is he in this world of people? The issue is not where is he. The issue is where am I? And where is my mind? Mm -hmm. And the biggest struggle was in here. 
And that's kind of the, what we want to share with you in this first session. We're going to break down decision making. I was such a poor decision maker. I thought I had it down packed, like super formulaic. But I really did not have an idea of how to make a good decision. I was brought up with very good principles, what was right and what was wrong. But my issue was I was never taught why. So don't do this. Why? Because I said so. Don't do that. Don't go to those places. Don't speak to those kind of peoples. And you know, decent women aren't found in such and such a place. And it's like, well, why? There was no why. And the problem is that without the why, when you find yourself in a situation where mom, dad, or whoever you speak to is not there to give you the yes or no, you should do this, you find yourself completely with the inability to make the right decision. Well, my body feels good right now. Why? Well, why shouldn't I do this? Well, it feels good. You're inequipped to know and understand how to make the right decision if you don't understand the why. So we're going to kind of get into the why, I think. Just before that, from the guy's perspective, I was kind of that other guy that she's talking about that was always needed that companion. So I would get my kind of mind from what I put into my mind, and that would be Hollywood, that would be the entertainment industry, that would be music. And you start to try and follow these ideologies and ideas of how relationships should be. You know, you know what Hollywood's like? You meet the girl on Monday, Tuesday, you're going on a date, Wednesday, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't need to go into detail. But that was kind of my mindset growing up from a young age. I, I was craving that female attention because I'd had it my whole life. So um, I was struggling with those kind of things. And it was only after I, I became um, back into the church, I had to surrender that. I had to give it up. I had to realize that I had to give up my want for female attention for Christ. He had to feel that. And it was only after I found Christ that then he could, he could put Charlene in my life. If it was the other way around, I would have ruined her life just like those other guys. But it was only this way where we were able to kind of move forward. And that kind of leads us onto the problem. Yeah. So the problem is Romans 7, 18 to 19. Did you guys want to pull that up? We're using the Bible. Like, I, I always found, I always loved relationship talks and seminars. Like, I just loved anything to do with it. But I found a lot of it was a lot of talk, which I love to debate. But what we're going to share with you, what I really appreciate about this stuff, is that you can go back to the words. So when you get home, it's not just a nice discussion that we're going to have here together, which is fun. We're going to have a laugh. But you can actually go <coughs> home with um, something. Sorry. <laughs> I'll mute my mic next time. <laughs> so it says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does anybody find that this is the story of their life? Yes. You have the desire, you know, God knows the desires of your heart and praise God for his grace. But if you find yourself keeping on doing the very things you don't want to, getting the wrong results, we have this same issue that Paul is kind of illustrating. And that's where I found myself too. Very much wanting to do what's right, but finding that I was always ending up with the wrong formula. And... I got to the point where I was really, really, really broken down. Um, I pushed everybody out of my life. 
And I was doing things my way because I was going to do it right. Nobody else was going to look out for me. I was looking out for number one. And I was at university. I'd had a break, the breakup of my life. Um, and I just concluded I'm always going to love him. He's my person. We're the same person. He'd walk into the room, and there'd just be electricity. Like Everybody would see it. He was just my person. And I concluded that, you know what? I'm just always going to love him. And if I can't be with him, which I couldn't, it's OK. I'm just going to go through life, and part of me is just always going to love him. I'll just do life and do whatever else that I wanted to do. And I ended up getting this series of wake-up calls um, in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning one week. I don't remember what the first two nights were about. But on the third night, God woke me up. And he was like, my child, wake up. I was like, not tonight, Lord. Um, I'm tired. I just, I just want to sleep. And he's like, no, we're going to deal with this problem, your love for that boy. I was like, no, we've been there. We've done that. Got the T-shirt. I'm always going to love him. It's just, it is what it is. And God was like, no, wake up. I cannot bless you with the future that I have for you unless you heal from this. My child, wake up. And it's at this point that um, he took my mind's eye, as it were, to a room. And in this room, there was a girl. Um, she was walking around. She was shivering. She was cold. There was a door to that room, and it was wide open. The room had like a beige-colored floor, quite light, wooden floor. In the corner, there was this semblance of a fire, but the embers were really low. It wasn't giving out any heat. She was super cold. There was a table that had some stale-looking bread on it. And she was just walking around the room, just completely just upset and alone and shivering. And then in walks a guy through this room. The door was wide open, and he had big, muddy boots on. And he stomped into the room, and her face lights up like it's Christmas because she's not alone anymore. And he walks in, and he tramps that mud all over the floor. But she doesn't care. She follows him around the room. And she's like, um, she's just super happy. She's following him around like a sheep. And then he looks at his watch, looks kind of a bit bored. And she's like, no, 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 don't leave. She takes him to the table, sits him at the table, and feeds him the bread that's on the table. He eats his fill, he gets up, and he just walks out the door. Doesn't even look back, doesn't say a thing to her. And she is broken, broken. She looks at her floor and she's like, oh my goodness. So she gets down and she tries to clean up the mud. But have you ever tried to clean mud and all you do is smear mud circles? That's what was happening. She's like, this is a waste of time. So she quickly goes and finds this rug, pulls it out and slaps it on, you know, it covers most of the floor, so she covers most of the mess. I call it a coping mechanism. And no sooner had she covered up most of the mess, than in walks another guy through the open door, and he had big muddy boots on as well. But he was a bit more conversational, you know, he smiled. He even avoided the rug because you could see it was a bit of a sensitive area. She's like, yes, this is the guy. She's so happy. He's much better. This is, this is the this is the better option. And she follows him around the room, and eventually, even he walks his mud all over that rug. He doesn't care. Looks at his watch. Looks a bit bored. She's like, no, 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 please, don't leave, don't leave. And she takes him to the table. She sits him at the table, and he eats his fill of the bread that's there. And when he's finished, gets up, and he walks out of that room. And the girl is, she thought she was broken before. 
but I don't know what the next stage is after broken, 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 broken. And she's crying her eyes out and shivering because she's freezing. There's a big gale coming through that open door and she's crying her eyes out. And it's at this point that God says to me, Shah, this is you. You have left the door of your heart open for anybody to walk into. And what do you get from this? A messed up floor, emptiness, and you're cold. You need to let me in. You need to let me in. There's another part to the story, but we're going to go into how did I end up being in that position where God had to reach out to me, and praise God he did. What was my decision-making process about? And we're going to look at a brain. This is a brain, sort of. So we have what's called the lower powers. These are our desires, our passions, our emotions, and our feelings. They're a very valid part of our life. Very often when we come to talk about relationships, it's all about you need to control your passions. You need to put your feelings aside. You just need to think about things. But the, the reality is feelings, emotions, and, and our passions, they're not wrong. God has instilled these things in us because they're the things that get us to move. If you had no desire for hunger, you'd sit there and just die because you had no desire to go find food. We need these things as a necessary part of our life. These are the lower powers. The next thing is called our higher powers. These things are reason, these are our reason, our judgment, our conscience, and our morality. These are the way that we weigh our decisions. And God has a plan for how we should make these decisions. The plan looks like this. We have a desire, a passion, or a feeling or something. We then should transfer that feeling and passion to our reason, judgment, conscience, and morality. And then that influences our will. Our will is our decision maker. It gets us to move. Messages to Young People says, your will is the spring of all your actions. How many actions? Some? All. All of your actions. So the big issue here is what's going on with our will. And the things that factor that will are the higher and lower powers. So you see, if you start at the bottom, transfer to the top, and it influences the will, this is God's complete cycle for decision-making. So it's like you have this desire for hunger. What am I going to do about it? Well, let's think. Think about it. So it should be better for me to maybe go and get a really good meal, like, I don't know, rice and beans, a bit of salad, finish off with some nuts, and I go do that, and then I feel that satisfaction of a full stomach, I like food, right here. So I feel it. So I started with a feeling of hunger. I've transferred it to my, my higher powers. How should I go about it? What's the best way to do it? That's influenced my will. I've made the decision for what meal I've got, and I feel full. Do you see how it's a complete cycle from feelings all the way around to your will and back down? Steps to Christ, page 47, says, This is the governing power in the nature of man. The power of decision or of choice, everything depends on the right action of the will. Now, if you think about all the decisions that you're making, if you did them in this complete cycle, we'd find that we'd have a much more fulfilled life. And I realized that I wasn't doing that. 
I'd fallen for the counterfeit. Satan always has a counterfeit. Let's go back to our brain. We have our desires, our passions, our emotions, and our feelings. So let's say we're hungry again. I'm starving. What can I eat? You know what? I'm just going to go raid the snack cupboard. I'm going to get some chips. I'm going to get some dip. I'm going to get some like chocolate bars. I'm going to get some candy. And I'm just going to binge out. I'm going to... That's what I'm going to do. Straight away, your feelings have gone to your will. You've made a decision. You didn't engage the fact that maybe this is just super high calorie. It's going to last five, five minutes. How long does it take for you to get hungry after you've had a packet of chips and a chocolate bar? I mean, for me, it's like half an hour. Like, I need more than that. So I've instantly gone from a feeling and a desire to just going and acting on it. And I feel, OK, yeah, I'm full for like half an hour, but it doesn't last. The problem with doing this and influencing your, your will straight from your desires is that this is what happens. Satan's short circuit. And your desires end up becoming so big, so overpowering, that your will is basically consumed right in there. Do you see that there's no distance to the will from the feelings? And where's the little, the little voice of reason? Doesn't get a look in. That arrow can't even reach it. And this is what I found was happening in my relationships. I had fallen for Satan's counterfeit, short-circuited my decision-making process, and my heart was driving every single thing that I wanted. I see him, you know, he's, he's, he's about something. He's got charm. He's got swag. Yeah, that's what I'm going to go for. And I instigated all of the things necessary to make myself available for his notice so that we could work something out. My desires and my passions became every single thing. And I found that most of... Your feelings need to be in an environment where they are engaged. So I'd spend so much time on the phone. I'd spend time, you know, going out, just chilling, doing whatever we were doing. We needed to be, we needed to have that kind of dialogue. We spent a lot, I spent a lot of time with a lot of people. When I first moved from my city in Manchester in England, I went to study in London, which is where my husband's from. And it was a new environment. I was away from home. Mummy and daddy aren't there anymore. Let's live. And I just started to get to know people because I'm a friendly, kind, nice northern girl. Super innocent, super naive, super self-absorbed. And I started to talk to guys, and I was just being their friend because I'm friendly. But I found it so much easier to have friendships with guys than I did with girls. And why is that? With a guy, there's always like, oh, there's a level of attraction. Naturally, biologically, it's easier to be around the opposite sex because there could just be this level of just resonance. But with a girl, girl on girl, we need to find something that we have in common. We need to talk. You, you actually have to work at a relationship with somebody that if it's girl to girl or guy to guy. You can't just resonate and just be around each other and just chill because, you know, I sort of like you. You kind of sort of like me. We've just got a vibe. Vibes really cover so much and they mask it. And you actually think it's great friendship. And you can be. I'm not saying you can't be friends with the opposite sex, but it's just easier. And I wanted the easy way out. I didn't want to have to deal with girls talking about their hair and talking about this. I wasn't into that. I just found I could have more straight-talking, reasonable conversations with guys. Most of my friends were guys. And I thought that was fine. 
I honestly thought it was fine. Until one day, I was friends with this guy for about a year. We'd talk all the time. Like, he'd message me in the morning, I'd speak to him throughout the day, and we'd speak for like an hour and a half or something after I got back from university at home in the evening. We talked all the time, and he was just, he was great. We really got on, we talked about life, everything. And then it got to the point where something happened, and I think he deleted something out of my phone. I think it was a text message that I think I'd saved, like back in the day we had archives, you know, old phone, I'm old. Um, there was like some archives somewhere, and I'd saved this message that my ex-boyfriend, who I was always gonna love, and I saved it in there. And somehow he managed to find his way through my archives, and he deleted that message that I was saving. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. How dare you go in my phone and deal with my business? I was so angry. Let's put it that way. I was hovering with anger. I could have flown with the weight of anger. I was like, how dare you? And he looked at me like, so what? So what? I was so livid, and I stopped talking to him. And he's phoning me, and he, then he started one time to shout down the phone at me. And I screamed back at him like, it's not like we're in a relationship. You're not my boyfriend. What are you doing? And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And it was in that moment that I realized and I look back over this year, that poor guy had invested a year into me. All of his conversations, all of his time, all of his heart to hearts or whatever it was, it was with me. Who did he invite to go listen to him play his, his music? I did. I was just his friend. Genuinely, innocently, naively, and selfishly, I was just being his friend. It wasn't that case for him. I was a user. And I didn't realize that because I hadn't filled myself and made the right decisions, I was, I was filling my feelings, I became a user of other people's emotions. I stole his time. I stole a year of his life. And it wasn't just him. I had other friends, too. I stole their time. But I never saw myself as being a bad person. And how was it for you? Well, <laughs> from my perspective, it was... I was, the, I was the person that was trying to get something from the girl. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. You invest time into that person for a reason. You can't just be friends with me? No. We can't just get along? I'm investing. No one wants to be friends on. Let's be honest. You spend so much time and effort trying to invest into that girl to get something in return. Now, the Christian way is you're trying to get a wife. You're trying to get someone that's going to raise your children, you know, who's going to help you get to heaven. That's the Christian perspective, but the worldly perspective is physical contact. You're investing for your selfish needs. And that's what was kind of from my perspective. Okay. So you think spending time is bonding? So I think spending time is bonding. I think spending time is investing in that person. It's like going to the bank. You put money, you invest money into the bank to let it grow, to get something in return. You don't, get some, you don't put something in a bank to get nothing in return. You know, you're investing. And that's how I see the same thing with us guys. We were investing, and that's what the Hollywood, that's what the world teaches us, we're investing. But there's two types of investment. There's investing in Christ and getting a godly wife, or there's investing in uh, the world and trying to get something for your own selfish desires and needs.
getting the kind of wife or situation that we're going to look at yeah. in Proverbs 5. So I was going to, we're going to go through this, this section. I, I actually really like this passage. It's quite juicy. So Proverbs 5, we're going to start in verse 1. And it says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell, lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable, you do not know them. My version here says, she does not ponder the path of life, verse 6. Her ways wander and she does not know it. That was me. My ways were wandering and I did not know it. As if I would look at this passage and, oh, and what's the title? Warning against adultery. I'm not an adulteress. I would never look at myself as this, you know, this sort of woman. I wasn't that sort of woman. But my actions actually were. I spent talking time. My, my lips dripped honey. They're not go Nobody's going to talk to you and invest time in you if you, you're super harsh and you don't say something that, that sounds nice. And honey's sweet. Guys would like it. My speech was smoother than oil. I knew how to say the right things to be able to keep, you know, an active conversation. I liked debate. Would I ever have seen myself as an adulteress? Never. But it was only later in life when I started to actually reassess who I was and stop deluding myself that this innocent, sweet church girl that I prided myself in being, yes, I desired to be that. But the reality was my decision-making meant that this is what I was doing to the people I was talking to. Verse 7. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give her honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and, your mo and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. I think verse nine here, it says, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. There's something about honor that should only be for your husband. There's, a, there's a, a, a unity that only a husband and wife should see. And it should not be given to the cruel one. It should be given to Christ. Mm -hmm. But here, you're giving your honor to anybody. This woman is giving her honor to actually everyone, anybody. And this is where the struggle begins. Yeah, it says here that you wasted your years. How many of us, it wasn't just with this one guy. Do you find that if any of your friendships that you've invested so much time in, or you've just been you know, friends with a guy, and I know you can do it innocently. I really wasn't a malicious person. I'm not that kind of girl. But the reality of my actions was that I wasted so many other people's years because of my need to be filled. I wanted somebody to talk to. I didn't want to be alone. I wanted somebody to laugh with, to understand me, and they did. I wanted that level of relationship and community from my friends without wanting commitment because, to be honest, I still loved my ex-boyfriend. I wasn't trying to get with somebody else because I didn't love them. I loved him. But I still craved that attention. I still needed that 
that male person, that male figure in my life because it made me feel good. And that impacted <coughs> my actions all the time. And you get to the point where it says in verse 12, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. All of these things that everyone's telling me, this is how you should be in relationships. I wasn't interested. I was doing it my way because it felt good. I had my friends. I knew what I was doing. Not realizing that what I was doing was totally selfish and unchristlike. Verse 21. 21? Oh, no, 15. Yeah. Drink water. Verse 15 says, drink water from your own system. It doesn't say drink water from someone else's. Focus on yourself. Stay grounded in Christ and focus on yourself. And running water from your own well, should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your, your own and not for strangers with you. It says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lot of our time is spent in interactions that are going nowhere. They feed our desires and our feelings. They influence our will, but they don't hold the complete cycle that God has for our decision-making process. And we end up in relationships that break us. I thought the guy that I was totally in love with, I'm not, gonna, I'm not silly. I'm not gonna fall in love with somebody who didn't you know, have good attributes, he did. But my decision-making process, and what we're going to go into in session two as well, is the people I allowed to be closest to me determined the caliber of the relationships that I ended up having in my personal relationships. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a good standard of entry to my life. And because of that, I was constantly finding myself in broken relationships, broken friendships. I ended up always finding myself alone. This is where God found me when I had that dream. I never had long-standing friendships. They'd always fall apart. Why? Because I always wanted things to be done my way. So we have a remedy. Praise the Lord. There is always a remedy. And that's what I love about the gospel. You can be as messed up as you like, innocently so as well. But God never leaves us in our mess. He doesn't want us to have unfulfilled relationships. He doesn't want us to be broken. Things aren't supposed to break us. The only thing that's supposed to break us is the rock, Christ. And that's a positive process, right? But relationships, they break you like nothing else. But Isaiah 1.18 says, I think most of us know this, come now, let us what together? Reason. Reason. Come now, let us feel or just, you know, have a good time together. Let's just, you know, what does he say? Reason. That implies dialogue. It doesn't necessarily even mean that you agree. But God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This decision, this, this reasoning time together with Christ, it puts our feelings back into the right sphere. It helps us to re-engage our reasoning. It's an exercise, like a muscle. Your brain is a muscle. If you don't use a muscle, what does it do? It shrinks. That's what happened to the reason in the short circuit. It got really small. But the time that you spend with Christ, reasoning it out, and you know what? I didn't agree with God in terms of how I wanted to operate my relationships. 
but I learned to come and reason and to hash it out with him. He is that real. If you need to hash it out with God and argue about it and, and really, really dialogue, do it. God is as close as that friend. I found even with my husband, he is my best friend. And I don't agree with everything he does. I don't. And there was a time in our marriage, like I said, we've had our ups and downs, where I just kept that to myself. What does your brain do? Oh, he's done this to me. Oh, he's really mean. He doesn't care for me. And I just reasoned it out. I, I reasoned it out in my small mind. I let my feelings take over. Oh, he's hurt me. He's done this. I didn't dialogue. We didn't dialogue. And my feelings and desires and my emotions, even in my marriage, got so big that all I felt was hurt. Mm. And there was one time, finally, I think I ended up writing a big diary entry into my diary. I cried for like three hours and wrote my heart out. And I just handed him the book and said, read this, and walked off. And how did you feel when I gave you that? I was just like, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> no. I think if you love your wife, you'll do whatever you can to please her. You know? You'll make sacrifices. You'll make the change. But because she had allowed that reason to take control, to not take, to control. Not take control, sorry, and get pushed away, we never communicated about this. And when we communicated about it is when changes started to happen. Straight away. Imagine, straight away. It was about three years, I think, I, I stored stuff up for, right at the start of our marriage. And the reason why I did that is because I hadn't learned and got married. You know, I'd made progress, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a learning curve. Communicating is the key and foundation to a marriage. You get married, people are like, make sure you communicate. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. We have all of these formulas for what you should do in your relationships, but what does that look like? Sure, I'm supposed to communicate with him, but what do I say when he's the person hurting me? Mm. I learned confidence in speaking to my husband by learning to have confidence in speaking to Christ. And you know, from a guy's perspective, when you allow the, when you allow the desires, passions, emotions, and feelings to take control and kind of short-circuit the will, you start to make decisions that you would not make if there was balance. So for example, um, I, sp I spoke to you guys at the beginning and said that I had an issue with always needing female attention. So from the age of probably 12, 13, as my sisters began to leave home, because I was the youngest, um, my sisters were um, probably 10, 12 years older than me, some of them. So as they started to leave home, there was a natural need for me to go and find the cravings from other people. So I started to date these girls from that young age. And I didn't really stop up until I had to surrender to the Lord before I met my wife. And um, as I started to get older and physical interests started to grow, um, because my reason had shrunk, I was only after that physical contact. But then as I became a Christian, I started to realize that there was a particular person that I was dating for a while. I started to realize that what I thought what I liked about her, I didn't. Because I was focused so much on the desires. The desires was driving everything. So this is what happens when, when you get married and you kind of um, have already gone down the physical contact route, is that you get married, and because you've already had all the benefits of marriage before marriage, you now get married and you realize, well, what, what else is there? 
And you start to maybe think that maybe it's the wrong person because now you're living in the same space. You know, as a, as a, as a, as a female, they want our attention. It's not just good enough for us to be in the same house and not spend any time with each other. This is one of the problems that we had when we first got married. So we got married, and when you're dating someone, you spend intentional time with them. You go out for a meal, you go for a walk, and then you separate and go to your own homes. But when you're married to someone, you're now in the living space all the time. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, I'm spending time with her because we're just at home together. But that's not intentional time. Are you seeing what I'm saying? So it's important that when you start to have that intentional time, so when I was dating the previous person, when the desires and the passions um, were driving everything, all my time was geared towards getting something in return. But then when I started to, my reason and judgment and morality started to grow, I started to recognize and realize that these characteristics are not necessarily ones that I want. Does that make sense? So that's why when you've got this complete balance, it will also help you to choose the right person for you. Sorry, it will also help you, God will also help you to find the right person for you because now your judgment, now you can discern, oh, she's not just pretty, there's this, 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 and this that I really like about this person. Or, you know, your conscience, you start to think cleaner thoughts, you know. It's not just about what we're going to do tonight, it's actually about how you're doing today, you know. Um, morality, similar kind of thing. So it's... it's this complete circle here, it enables you to have a deeper connection that is not just about physical intimacy. So then we get to the second part of the dream. You remember the first part? So, God showed, well, after he said those things to me, that this is what you've done, you've basically left your heart open. Basically like a public house. Anyone can walk in and out, take the fill of your life, and just, you know, leave. You're the one that's left empty and broken with a dirty floor. And then he took my mind's eye back to the room, and I saw the girl. She was walking around, and she was shivering. Shivering, shivering, because she was freezing. She didn't even bother try clean the floor. But she knew that there was, she had no more rugs. She, had, she knew it was a waste of time. And then she heard a knock at the door. She's like, what? No one knocks. The door's open. Everyone always walks in. She turns around and she sees a guy standing there and he's got pristine white robes on. And in his hand, he has a red bucket and engraved on the bucket, it says, precious blood spilt for you. She's like, strange person. He's knocking. She's like, what do you want? He's like, let me in. She's like, I don't know who you are. I don't know what all that's about, but you're weird. And she turns her back on him, and she continues to shiver and cry. And he just kept on knocking and wouldn't go away. And he just had this smile on his face. She's like, there's nothing funny going on here. But it wasn't a laughter. It was love on the face. And she didn't know how to recognize that. But eventually, she turned around. She's like, what? He's like, let me in. She's like, you know what? What have I got to lose? She's like, sure. Come in. And he comes in and he closes that door, puts down his bucket, and he holds that girl and lets her cry out. He holds her till she, she cries her last tear. And he says to her, stand at the door and watch. Stand at the door and watch. 
And she does, and then she watches him with just this look of complete awe and admiration as he gets down on his hands and knees in his pristine white robes, using that bucket. He gets down in, his, in her mess, and using the contents of that bucket, he cleans that floor. He throws away that rug. He cleans that floor completely. And then he puts everything away, and he stands by her side with his hand around her shoulders. And they stand and they wait. And eventually she hears a knock at the door because people have to knock now because the door is closed. She looks up at Jesus. She recognizes that it's him. And he goes, mm-mm. And she cracks the door open just a little bit. She throws out a sign to whatever waste man or whatever guy is outside there. And it says, Proverbs 16, Proverbs 6, 19 to 20, sorry. Do you not know that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in me. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. So she throws out that sign to whoever's out there and closes the door, continues to wait with Jesus. And eventually another knock comes to the door. She looks up at Jesus. He's like, mm-hmm. open the door. So she goes over to the door and she opens it. And a guy walks in. And you know what? He's got a little bit of mud on his boots. But he takes off his boots straight away and leaves them neatly by the entrance. He smiles at her, but doesn't go near her. He walks straight to Christ. He kneels down before Christ. And Christ puts his hand on his shoulders, lifts him up, and he walks the guy over to that girl and holds them together. And God was like, this is the future that you should have. And I want you to share this because you're not alone in how you've treated your heart. And there's another part of the story that I actually forgot to say. When Christ came in and he'd finished holding her, as part of his cleanup, he stoked the fire, he put fresh wood on the fire, and you know it started to get a warming glow, and he put fresh bread on that table, and then they were waiting. So there's a process to the cleanup. And that's what we're going to go into to the, in, in the next two sessions. It's the sanctuary. If you think about that room, there was a fireplace there. It's kind of a bit like the candlestick, right? You had the beige-colored floor, which kind of represented purity. That whole space was a bit like, you know, the most holy place, like her heart space. That table that had the, the bread on there, it was kind of stale. It's like the table of showbread. And that door, it's like the door to the courtyard. All of it, after God showed me that, I went and studied the sanctuary message, and it blew my mind. I was like early 20s, Adventist all my life, sat on the message of the sanctuary, and I thought, yes, it shows salvation, it's wonderful. You know, there's a, a pathway from the door through to the most holy place. It's about Christ and salvation, as if I had any idea that it was literally a blueprint for relationships, how I should conduct myself. Like I said, I like, I like something to follow. I like to know what I'm doing. I don't just like winging it all the time. And God showed me not just that it was about relationships and how I should conduct myself in them better, but also how I could heal from the pain that I'd experienced because of my poor decision-making. And... It says in this book, His Robe or Mine, by Frank Phillips. It's an incredible book. I don't know. I think it's out of print. 
But I think there's a PDF online. If you can find it, I would encourage every young person to read that book. I re read it repeatedly. But it says, as long as Christ has control, Satan is powerless. Satan knows that he cannot overcome man unless he can control his will. That's your decision-making. That's what Satan wants. When God controls the will, we still do the choosing. We don't just become robots. We still do the choosing, but it is then our greatest desire to do his will and not our own. When the will is in God's control, the five senses are reduced to reason and conscience rather than feelings. We then live by faith in place of feelings. Living by faith does not do away with feelings, but puts them in their proper place. It shrinks that big, fat, red section back down to give space for that reason and judgment. So God's complete plan of decision-making and the influencing of the will can happen. And I can completely testify to the difference in outcome that happens when you allow God's complete cycle to be restored. My guy number three did come along. <laughs> and he was great. And it didn't mean that, you know, we entered this wonderful, amazing marriage. Because, you know, what marriage is, I don't know, I, I grew up on Walt Disney. I had all of them except for Tinkerbell and another one. I had all of them. And Walt Disney means that you grow up and you meet Prince Charming and you walk off into the sunset and he's fabulous. And that's just it. Even the movies, you go, you go past it, you, you spend the whole, what, an hour and 20 minutes of however long the movie is, and they're fighting to be in relationship. Are they going to make it? Are they going to get together? Oh, no, she's going for the wrong guy. They finally end up together, and what happens? The end, they walk off into the sunset. Where's the sequel of two years later? Are they still making it? We don't get that. Hollywood doesn't give us how to make it. It gives us the whole emotional-fueled, let's just get the passions of relationship, and let's just get together. But that's not what marriage is. It's not just two people that passionately find each other and have this whirlwind romance, like, oh, tell me your marriage story. How did you meet? No. That wedding dress that you wear, girls, that you've spent your life dreaming about, and you find it, and it's like, it's the one, that's your war dress. That marriage ceremony that you have, it's a call to arms. Because when you wake up the next day, that's what we're going to have in our session, fourth session, which we want your questions. It's called Real Talk the Morning After. The morning after you wake up and you've been married. Now what? I spent my whole life wanting to be married. How do you live the day after? So I want you guys to come back. Stay with us through the journey, and we're going to talk about some real things. We've got some great couples that are going to share their hearts with you. Um, and we're going to share some more, too. Um, because it is absolutely possible to find that person. It's actually not that hard. And it's not just one of those, you know, long married couples that forget what the struggle's like. The struggle is real, but it doesn't actually have to be. And God doesn't intend it to be that way either. And we're going to share just how simple it can be to find that right person how you can actually heal from those past mistakes and make better decision-making through the sanctuary. So that's something you guys can go home with at the end of this. We don't just want you to have this great time at GYC, and then you go home and think, oh my goodness, now what do I do? We're giving you something to take home that I pray will impact you the same way it did for me, which directly impacted how, when my guy number three came along, things played out, which is very different. 
So we'll leave you, leave you with this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. You guys are precious. We are precious. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The sanctuary message is a message of restoration. It's simple, it is practical, and it is truly transforming. And I hope you guys come back in 15 minutes so that we can get stuck into it because I'm super excited. And just for those of you who... For those of you who uh, um, didn't come in at the beginning, if you can go to this website, slatter.com, and put in this code, um, you can start asking questions anonymously for the Q&A. Um, you'll see how it works when you go to the website, slatter.com. I'll leave that up on the screen now. So if anyone wants to do it in the break or has any questions, by all means, come and speak to us now. The questions that get posted, if the more likes they get, they're the ones that we're going to be answering in session four. Yeah. But for now, we'll, should we pray to close? Yeah. yeah. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the time that we've spent uh, building some foundations about decision-making, um, realizing that we could quite possibly have found ourselves stuck in the cycle of Satan's counterfeit, wanting to do something different, but always ending up doing the very things that we don't want to do. And Lord, you know our hearts. You know the desires that we have. You know just our desires to find the right person and to be with them and, and also how to live that right marriage. I pray, Lord, as we go through the, the sanctuary message in our next session that you would walk us through just how incredibly simple your plan is for our relationships and how we can conduct ourselves so that we can find that right person without the struggles and the, the heartache that characterize many of our journeys. Be with us now, I pray, and thank you so much for your word. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.